I always uh, love when I get a chance to preach to you uh, because I get to pick the text and Darren has to follow me with the music. And he always picks my favorite songs for some strange reason. Thank you, Darren. Um, Before we get into it here, um, I would like to just pray an old Anglican prayer that I kind of grew up on spiritually and have always loved. So join me um, in prayer now. Father, what we do not know, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, kindly make us for your Son's sake. Amen. Amen. This morning, by the grace of God and His strength, I, I endeavor to give you an overview survey message on Paul's letter to the Galatians. And by way of introduction, I want to explain, number one, what I'm not doing, and number two, what I'm going to try to be doing and why I'm doing this. Number one, this is not um, an effort to one-up Steve and preach a whole message in one message on a whole book. I think that's stupid and silly because you can all count and you know that there are less pages in Galatians than there are in Revelation. So that's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do here is to kind of give you an inside peek into youth ministry here at Grace Bible Church. This is a kind of what we do um, on Sunday mornings and on Thursday nights. In, in youth ministry, we like to do a lot of things. And, and, and one of the things that I really get excited about is, is teaching students um, how to kind of unpack the details in God's Word, but I also like to give them kind of broad strokes and help them see big picture themes. And that's kind of the idea here. We are going through many overview messages in Cornerstone right now, and this has been one that I've taken a lot of joy in, and I want to share it with you as well. Um, And as way of uh, further introduction, if you were to read through uh, the book of Acts, for instance, you'd quickly note many things. Um, Two things you'd probably notice very quickly. Number one, the Apostle Paul is always on the move. Um, according to Luke, at least, when he records how long he stays in one place, the, the longest time he stays in one place is Ephesus, and that's for two years. We see Paul embark on three missionary journeys, but uh, I suspect he probably went on more than that. In his first missionary journey, he went to the island of Cyprus, and he went to south or, or modern-day Turkey, and that's in Acts 13 through 14. Um, By the way, important note, um, this is probably the location of the Galatian churches that he addresses in this letter. In his second missionary journey, he went to Turkey again, this time by foot, spreading the news of the Jerusalem Council and their decision that was made in Acts 15. He went into modern-day Europe, um, titles like Macedonia, Achaia, and Ephesus. This is this is Greece, and this is back to Turkey again. This happens in Acts 16 through 18. And then on his third missionary journey, he travels through all of these places again and then rushes to get back to Jerusalem in time to get arrested because he's the Apostle Paul and he's always in 
a hurry. He's continually on the move, and as we see in his letter to the Romans, he's, he's, he's moved, compelled as the apostle to the Gentiles to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest he build on someone else's foundation. He's always on the move. But we also see that the Apostle Paul is always being attacked. Sometimes this hostility comes from outside of the church. It comes from civil authorities. It comes from disgruntled idol makers, like what you see in Acts 16 and 19. But oftentimes, most times, it comes from jealous Jews who are aggressively trying to stop the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And other times, that's, that's just the attacks that, that Paul receives from, in, uh, from outside the church. Paul also receives a lot of hostility from inside the church. There are factions constantly pursuing Saul, chasing him from place to place. As a matter of fact, one of these factions and groups is called, in Titus 1.10, the Circumcision Party. Or you could call them the Party of the Pharisees, as Acts 15.5 says it. Um, they appear to be people that have come out of the Jerusalem church, and they're known as Judaizers. They are constantly pursuing Paul. And we get a, a kind of a picture of this. In Acts 14, I'm going to read just really quick here, Acts 14, 24, all the way through 15, 1. This is at the end of Paul's first missionary journey. Then they passed through Poseidon and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And now he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. But then 15.1 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This gives us kind of a snapshot of possibly Paul's situation here. You notice they're right off of a joyful missionary journey, telling all that God has done through them and with them, and trouble pursues them. How do they kind of resolve this issue? Well, Acts 15.2 and following kind of speaks about how they settled the issue. It was the Jerusalem Council that happened in AD 49. This is the first church council in history. Uh, what was at stake here? Well, you could probably figure it out from Acts 15.1, but um, the question was, do Gentile believers need to be circumcised? Do they need to become Jewish to be saved? Uh, to fully enjoy fellowship, you could say. To fully enjoy fellowship with their Jewish counterparts. Or to have, uh, have, have they not spiritually arrived yet do they need something more? It's a critical issue that the early church faced. It was a question of the gospel, right? Is full acceptance with God an equation where you mix faith in Christ with a few good works? That was the critical issue. What was the decision? Well, we could read 15, 22 through 29, but for the sake of time, I'll summarize it for you. Don't listen to these Judaizers. That's basically the council's decision. They decide justification, that is your right, present, and eternal standing before God, is not by works but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
And at the same time, they add a little comment onto the end of their letter to the Gentiles. They ask them to be sensitive to the consciences of their fellow Jewish brethren, but their message is clear. Do not listen to these men. Salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. And here is where we come to the letter to the Galatians. I would see this as Paul's first letter that he wrote. I believe Paul also wrote this near the time of Acts 15. It contains a lot of parallel issues and people and locations, so it seems to be very close. Um, But please note my uh, key word that I'm emphasizing to you there, near. Um, I probably part with many men that I highly respect um, on where I place this letter in Paul's missionary journey. The key issue, of course, maybe this is more than you want to know, but I'll tell you anyway. The key issue is, do you think Paul is describing Acts 15 in Galatians 2? That's what you have to decide for what's going on. And I'm, I'm just frankly, I'm not convinced that he is describing Acts 15 in Galatians 2. And I honestly don't want to spend too much time on this, but, but let me just say this, that I just can't see Paul not more clearly referencing this Acts 15 council in the letter to the Galatians. I mean, I... Some people would argue that he is referring to it there in Galatians 2, but I feel like he could have been a little bit more explicit, right? I mean, if I was Paul, this is what I would say. I'm not Paul, so take it as you will. I would say, Galatians, you idiots. We talked about this. All of the apostles, all of the elders, we were all gathered together. They all agreed. Don't listen to the Judaizers. Circumcision plus works is a no-go. But good and godly men disagree. But that's my opinion. I, don't, I do think it doesn't much change the interpretation of the letter, so we can move on. And enough with this. Let's move on into the book. Open your Bibles, if you would, if you haven't already, to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, let me just say this. This is perhaps one of the most explosively emotional letters that the Apostle Paul writes. It feels as though it was written with this urgency and this haste, this passion. Now, this didn't lead him to theological imprecision or sinful rage, but we see here a quick concern. Paul is not willing to wait to see if this kind of blows over. This is deadly that they are flirting with and tinkering with here. This is a danger that is particularly dangerous to this church. Paul can't wait to address this at an in-person visit. He can't wait for a church council to decide on this. He needs to address this issue in the Galatians churches now. This is probably why I would see it as written before. I would actually see it written right at the end of Acts 14 and 15 in that beautiful white space where you can pile all of your questions where it says they remained no little time with the disciples. Now, by way of contrast, do you remember how Paul starts his letter to the Corinthians? Great church, those Corinthians, but they had a lot of problems, didn't they? They had serious issues with this unity, pride, sexual immorality tolerated in the church, uh, marital confusion, self-behavior that was self-centered in their church gatherings. They were confused about spiritual gifts. They were tinkering with resurrection problems. They were misunderstanding that doctrine. Uh, Paul had a lot to say, sorry, correct, in the Corinthian church. 
But how does he begin his letter to the Corinthians? He begins with thanksgiving to God for God's work in them still. Right? Paul was able. He was always able to recognize the grace of God in believers, regardless of how messed up they were. That is a good practice that we could put in place as well, to recognize God's grace even among the greatest of sinners. That's how he addresses the Corinthians. But uh, how does he start off his letter to the Galatians? With salvos of warning and correction all the way through. He doesn't give them a moment's peace. This is a constant bombardment of doctrine and truth slamming into them, unrelenting from start to finish. We only have a time for a few snapshots. Um, gaze at verse 6 in chapter 1 of Galatians, Galatians 1 6. He says this I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ Jesus and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching... To you, a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Notice that repetition there of accursed. This word means let him be doomed, let him be cut off, let him be cursed, let him be separated from Christ. This is, this is bad. And notice at the end of Galatians in chapter 6, Verse 11, Paul says this, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and not only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Paul is strong, firm, clear, and this is a high-tensioned letter throughout the entire thing from beginning to end. Now, question, why is Paul so strong here? Someone is preaching a different gospel in verse 6. These are probably people who are outside of the Galatian church. We, we see Paul in chapter 2, verse 4, seems to assume that they are similar to the opponents he faced in Antioch. They are pressuring the Galatians to accept this thing called circumcision in 5, verse 2. And just so you know, circumcision is just an initial step to become a Jew. In 6, 12, they are trying to escape persecution. In, in chapter 4, he references, he, he, he references how they are trying to get these Galatians to observe months and seasons and years. And also, this is interesting. This, this may be happening as well, if you can gather this. They, they may be perhaps correcting Paul's gospel as well. They may be suggesting that Paul is softening the gospel to make it more acceptable to Gentiles. 
They're, they're, they're accusing Paul of many great and heinous things, preaching a soft gospel, not preaching the full one. But to really expose Paul's, Paul's, Paul's energy here and to expose the serious nature of this fierce start and this whole letter, we have to get a feel for the letter as a whole. That's what I want to do this morning. The letter to the Galatians is a tight, I see tight, progressive, logical argument from beginning to end, and it is a dagger in the heart of any other gospel that would seek to present itself against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the letter to the Galatians is divided commonly into three parts, and I agree with this division. Uh, Chapters 1 through 2, we see Paul's autobiographical defense. In chapter 3 through 4, we see Paul's theological defense. And then in in, in chapters 5 through 6, we see Paul's applicational defense. We'll we'll go and remind ourselves of those things again. I'm going to work with that division, but I'm going to kind of put new titles onto those divisions so that we can understand the flow of his argument. Think of what we're going to do here this morning as this. This is the case for why adding works to the message of justification by faith is spiritual destruction. If you go down this road, you will be destroyed by it. Let's look at his first argument in chapters 1 and 2, his autobiographical defense. Here's my heading for this section. If you depart from Paul's gospel, you depart from Christ. If you depart from the things that Paul has said, you are separated, accursed, cut off from Christ. Notice first how Paul speaks of himself. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Not man's gospel. Paul did not just wake up one morning and decide, I want to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was chosen. He was Christ's chosen instrument to proclaim Christ to the Gentiles. Matter of fact, if you look in Acts, his calling as an apostle is repeated three times throughout the book. It's emphasized. So so essentially, he didn't wake up one morning He didn't decide to go to the Apostle Peter's theological seminary. He received the gospel by direct revelation from Christ himself. And he says this in verse 15 as well. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. He spent, it says, three years, according to verse 18, three years in Arabia after Christ's appearing. We'll talk more about that in a second. He carries the weight and authority of one of Christ's apostles 
The word apostles means a sent one, an officially sent one, somebody who personally carries the authority of the person they are being sent by. It's as if Caesar is coming to town when his sent messenger comes to town. You don't mess around with one of Caesar's apostles and you don't mess around with one of Christ's sent ones either. Paul saw himself as Christ's apostle sent to the Gentiles. He carried, therefore, Christ's authoritative gospel, which no man, no man could contradict. Remember, verses 6 through 9, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Paul is not playing games here. You contradict Paul, you contradict Christ. But I want you to notice something else in these first two chapters as well. Notice how Paul acts and how his actions are perceived by others. He didn't get this message from anybody. He didn't go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles until 17 years after his conversion. I'm adding up uh, chapter 118 with chapter 2, verse 1 to get 17 years. When he did go formally, as we see in chapter 2, he was recognized as someone who had the same apostolic authority as Peter and all of the other pillars of the church. We see that in chapter 2, verse 8. For he who worked through Peter, for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that The grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They recognized that Paul and those people that were with Paul had authority because Paul had authority. And you see in another interesting thing in Galatians 2, 1 through 3, it speaks of how Paul, this little detail here that tells us so much, Paul brought uh, Titus, who apparently was a Gentile, to this Jerusalem meeting. I, do not, I take this as a pre-Jerusalem council meeting. And when he brought him, he refused to let Titus be pressured into circumcision. And notice, all of the Jerusalem leadership agrees. And we also see during this same trip that the apostles agreed with him in this and they and recognized his equal status with them. And, and, and something else, notice the authority he assumes even before such men. He doesn't shrink from anyone if the truth of the gospel is at stake, even if one of those men is an apostle. Chapter 2, verse 11 reveals the Apostle Paul's confrontation to Peter. This is very interesting. Chapter 2, verse 11, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted Uh, hypocritically along with him. So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter was a leader. 
but Peter was acting in the fear of man. We see Peter's response is very instructive. He had no answer for the Apostle Paul. His actions were not based here in theology, but in the fear of man. Wrong theology. His theology was suggesting to the Gentile believers there in Antioch that they weren't fully there yet. Maybe if you guys were circumcised, I could enjoy this table and this feast with you, but you guys aren't really there yet. So I'm going to shrink away. You are not as right, as pure before God as these Jewish brothers. I need to separate from you. That's what his, his actions were communicating, even if he didn't realize what he was doing. Now, in my Bible, and perhaps in yours as well, the quote there of Paul ends at the end of verse 14, where he answers Peter. But I think there are good reasons to see uh, Paul's response to Peter his public response to Peter actually goes down all the way to verse 21 of chapter 2. Notice first, in, in verse 15, the we, ourselves are Jews, the we there continues. Uh, since the Galatians were Gentiles, this isn't referring to them. He's probably still talking to Peter at this point. And notice also in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he then turns again to the Galatians and says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you. So we see here in the latter, latter end of uh, chapter 2 of Galatians that Paul is just unleashing this response to Peter. And you could see this kind of as a transition into his theological defense, but we're going to go through it. We're, we're still going to hold on to this as P, uh, P, uh, Paul's autobiographical defense of the gospel. First off, notice Paul's f- full response to Peter. Look at what he says in verses 15 through 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, if you actually read Acts 15, the thing that Peter says in the Jerusalem Council actually sounds a whole lot like what Paul just said to him. Peter says this in Acts 15, 10 through 11. Now, therefore, we are, uh, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. This is what Peter said. And it sounds a lot to me like he got this from Paul and the Paul that is recorded in Galatians 2.15. But notice there what, what Paul is saying and notice what Peter is saying there. No one is right with God based on what they do by their good works. Nobody, nobody can get to God by good works. I don't care if you are a Jew or a Gentile or a slave or a free or a male or a female. You can't get to God and find justification by works. That is what Paul is saying. That is what Peter is saying. As a matter of fact, listen to the very words that Peter says again. It is a yoke it is a yoke around the neck that they cannot bear, and 
if we're honest, we have never been able to do it either. He's talking to Jews. Chapter 2, 16 is also critically important to Paul's gospel message. Chapter 2, 16, notice what he said. Well, I read it. He repeats that phrase of not by works of the law, but through faith. Notice what Paul is saying here. You are not saved or right before God based on anything you do. It's similar to what he says in Romans 3.20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Look also down at Galatians 2.20. This is Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You're not saved by works. It's because you have been united with Christ. When he died, you die. As he lives, you live. That is the hope of the gospel. When Peter denied table fellowship to these Gentiles, though, he was essentially saying that Christ's cross just was not good enough. Think about that. Christ is not good enough. Look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ's death is pointless if you can work your way to God. What answer most speedily comes to your mind when you receive that question? Hey, if you were to die tonight, what would you say to God? Is it, my sin isn't really that bad? I mean, it's annoying kind of a hassle sometimes but it's not a huge problem generally i'm a pretty good person or maybe it's you know i've been really working hard lately i've been coming to church i've been reading my bible i've been doing a lot of good things surely god will see my heart and he will accept me that's got to count for something right you want a dagger in those ideas How bad, how severe is your sin? Your sin took God sending down the second member of the Trinity, His own Son, to become fully man so that He could live a full human life on your behalf. So that He could die a horrific substitutionary death That is the extent of your sin. How bad is your sin? How bad is that lust? How bad is that greed? How bad is that anger? It's that bad. Christ had to be crucified. That's how great your sin is. That's how bad your sin is. That's how far you are from a holy God. True believers are sobered by the weight of this. All to say, this is Paul's gospel. If you depart from Paul's gospel, you are cut off from Christ. That's just argument number one, though. 
Still with me? Argument number one, his autobiographical defense. But let's move on to his theological defense in chapter 3 through 4. This is his defense, essentially. If you depart from Christ, you are outside of the promise of the Gospel. If you depart from Christ, you are outside of the good news of the Gospel. What is the promise of the Gospel? Chapter 3. 7 and 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. The promise of the Gospel is the promise of sonship, becoming Abraham's sons in the faith. What makes this promise so great and so grand? You are justified, he says, before God, apart from the works of the law. Justified, you have received God's legal declaration, His full and final sentence of your spiritual state. God has told you in advance what His decision on your behalf is. And it is because of Christ that He has counted or credited to you. This same promise by faith Abraham had. We see in uh, verse 17 of Galatians 3. The law actually came long after Abraham. After the promise. It came 430 years after this time. We also see in 3.10, the law brings a curse if it is pursued in this way. It can never justify. It never was meant to. And we see in 3.24, the law is looked at as a guardian. You see there, a guardian it was somebody who was a teacher or an instructor or a keeper, and the word would bring to mind this first century slave who was entrusted with the responsibility of keeping track of the, the, the rich and powerful son who was needed to go to school every single day, and you needed a disciplinarian to keep, make, and make sure that boy went to school and behaved. The law functions like a strict disciplinarian. The law was for keeping people for something. It was meant to point them to something, to Christ. It was never meant to justify. We also see here in in Paul's theological defense, he says this, By faith we are in Christ. We have put on Christ's righteousness. Read with me. Verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. Think about that. Verse 27, glorious words. You have put on Christ. Christ. Everyone who believes by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is seen in Christ's garments, is seen as Christ legally before God. When God looks at you, He sees Christ's righteousness because you have put on Christ. This is talking about the doctrine of justification. I've been reading this book lately. 
It's by J.C. Ryle. It's called Holiness. He describes justification this way. Justification is the reckoning and counting a man to be righteous for the sake of another, even Jesus Christ the Lord. The righteousness we have by our justification is not our own, but the everlasting, perfect righteousness of our great mediator Christ imputed to us and made our own by faith. In justification, our works have no place at all. And simple faith in Christ is the one thing needful. Justification is a finished and complete work. And a man is perfectly justified the moment he believes. Justification admits of no growth or increase. A man is as much justified the hour he first comes to Christ by faith as he will be to all eternity. That's what Paul's saying. When he's saying, You have put on Christ. I love that last part of that quote. You cannot increase. You cannot better your justification. You are legally, if I can put it this way, you are legally in God's sight as good as you'll ever be. Or you could say it like this, you are legally, judiciously, forever, without any spiritual potential. You are as righteous today in Christ because you have put on Christ as you will be for all eternity. You can pray. You can pray today in your seats with as much boldness and confidence as you will have a millennium from now. Because you have put on Christ. As he says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. Praise the Lord. What glorious good news. I don't know about you, But that is good news to sinners. But Paul is not done. And you know he's not done because you can count. You got three more chapters, man. How could you possibly get better than this? And here's where it gets even more thrilling as he packs line upon line, argument upon argument. Notice one more thing. From Galatians 3 and 4, and we'll move. In Christ you have been justified so that you might also be adopted as God's children. God himself puts his spirit inside you to make you his children in your experience. Chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We have received adoption. 
You have been justified, not just so that you can wander around by yourself, but you have been justified so that you can join God's family. There's some very significant background information you need to know about adoption. Paul is drawing on this amazing ancient metaphor that they would have understood and I think is a little bit missed on us. So take some time to think about this with me. Today, the common practice today is that people adopt because they don't have a child. Well, that's... Why? They, but they, they adopt for reasons like they want a child. They're lonely. They desire a child. They desire a relationship. That's the primary motivation of adoption today. But in the ancient world, there was a significantly different purpose for adoption. You never saw... No names adopting anybody, right? Joe and Susie down the street uh, were never adopting because they couldn't have kids. It was the singular action of the upper class. It was usually a powerful or wealthy family or father who was looking to adopt an heir. It was a senator or a Caesar without a child. What happened in adoption? Well, first, the adopted son would first fully and legally be cut off and lose all of his former rights and privileges connected with his former family name, which was always a good thing because you were usually a slave. And then secondly, the adopted son would gain or he would put on all of the legal rights and the privileges of the new family and the new family name. You are no longer a slave. You are a son. You have a new status. You have a new privilege. You have new property. You have new relationships that flowed from this new status. You were instantly powerful. Not only that, you were looking at an inheritance of power as well. You're in line to manage the family wealth. You're in line to sit in the family seat. Did you see that? In the same way, we have been given a new position, right? We have been cut off from our old family ties. What does he say in 2.20? You have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live. And you have gained a new status. You have been justified by faith alone. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. 4-5, through you have received the adoption as sons and daughters. Now, here's where it gets dicey. Because here's where I try to illustrate it for you. To use a sports analogy. Say you were adopted into a family with a big, impressive Sports name, right? Suddenly your last name was Turner or Kershaw or Trout or James or Curry or something you guys will appreciate, Carr. Not K-Carr, C-Carr. I always have to clarify. Your whole life would suddenly and dramatically change, wouldn't it? You'd have sudden wealth. You'd have sudden fame. You'd have a sudden name that would get you all sorts of places. 
You'd have new boldness, new confidence all about you. Now, you probably wouldn't become a naturally better athlete. I mean, maybe there'd be some things that would improve with a little bit of discipline and time if you were really pressed, but everybody would know. Everybody would know, right? He's not a real guard. Yeah, he's adopted. Yeah, I can tell. This is a picture of God's adoption, and it's incomplete, but it shows us a picture of what it is to be in Christ. You have a new family name. You have sudden wealth. You have a sudden name, boldness, access. But it is weak, I admit. But, look at this. Look at what Paul says. This is not all that you have. When you put on Christ... You have also been given the spirit of adoption. The new spirit of adoption brings power into your life to become like Christ. Verse 6 of chapter 4. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God has put His Spirit in you, empowering sanctification in your life. This is the promise of the Gospel. It's like going into that family and somehow figuring out how to get the family DNA in you. But this is spiritual adoption. So much grander. So much greater. You receive it. This is the spirit of sanctification, the spirit of adoption. But this is all lost if you depart from Paul's Gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, Galatians, if you mess with my Gospel, you're not just messing with justification. You're also messing with sanctification as well. Because you miss out on the promise of the Gospel. Matter of fact, look what he says in Galatians 5, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. This is Paul's autobiographical defense and his theological defense. And third and final section, his practical or applicational defense, you could say, if you stand outside of the promise of the gospel, you stand outside of its power to truly fulfill the law. That's a mouthful. If you stand outside the promise of the gospel, you stand outside of power. It's not that Paul is saying the law is a bad thing. The law was to be a picture of a proper relationship with God, but it was never meant to be the means. It was meant to show you sin and point you to sin's sacrifice. Notice Paul also is not really trying to get rid of the law. He is not looking for lawlessness here. He is arguing for the only way to truly fulfill the law. You see that. You see that in 5. 5. 
For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. In verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in chapter 6, 2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul is saying, hey, if you cut yourself off from the promise of the gospel, you cannot truly fulfill the law of Christ. We have been given the power to, in some way, fulfill what Christ wants us to do, albeit ever so imperfectly. This is practical. And by the Spirit you walk against the flesh and fight against the flesh, but by the Spirit alone. Do you see what he's saying there in 5 Verses 4 through 5, he's saying, hey, no Christ, no spiritual resources. Verse 16, you are helpless against the desires of the flesh. The only desires that are present in your life are the flesh. Because he says, without the Spirit, look at what happens. Verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you're without the Spirit, this flesh can have its way with you, even in what you think are your best moments. But Paul is saying, no Christ, no resources. No Christ, no freedom. Do you see that in verse 1 of chapter 5? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And then in verses 16 and 17, he continues to talk about this freedom that the believer enjoys in the Spirit Without the Spirit, you're, you're left alone. But the question comes, freedom to do what? Freedom for what? Is this a freedom to sin? No. I think we can say pretty firmly, based on this passage and on other places like 1 John 3, 9, that no Christian, no true Christian, finds any freedom in sin or to sin. Sin is a noxious odor a painful return, a bad memory, a thing for which we are ashamed to go. No true believer who is indwelt by the Spirit can long stand a moment in sin. No, it is a freedom to not sin. It is power to walk against the desires of the flesh by the Spirit who lives in you talked a lot to parents about their kids. And one of my favorite descriptions of how they noticed God working in their child was when they said, you know what? This child used to sin and be troubled by the consequences of it. But now we see that our child is troubled that they sin. It is a burden to them. It frustrates them. It discourages them. It causes them to pray to God for help and strength. That is a believer. Let me say this to you, unbeliever, be warned. If you come to Christ, you are entering a fray, a mighty warfare, a conflict. But it is a good conflict. It is a good fight. It is a fight of freedom. This is Paul's Gospel. And he's pleading with you not to reject it this morning. 
Don't return to justification plus a few good things for righteousness before God. Embrace the full freedom that you have in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. I read to you earlier, earlier this quote by J.C. Ryle, and I, I love the quote. It's worth the price of the book, and you can go get it in the bookstore, Holiness by J.C. Ryle. But I didn't actually read you all of the quote. In this quote, he is marking the differences between justification and sanctification in your life. And these are two critical doctrines, and I just want to close by reading this quote. J.C. Ryle says this, Justification is the reckoning and counting a man to be righteous for the sake of another, even Jesus Christ the Lord. Sanctification is actually making a man inwardly righteous, though it may be in a very feeble degree. The righteousness we have by our justification is not our own, but the everlasting perfect righteousness of our great mediator Christ imputed to us and made our own by faith. The righteousness that we have by sanctification is our own righteousness, imparted, inherit, inherent, and wrought in us by the Holy Spirit, but mingled with much infirmity and imperfection. The justification, our own work... In justification, our own works have no place at all, and simple faith in Christ is the one thing needful. In sanctification, our own works are of vast importance, and God bids us fight and watch and pray and strive and take pains and labor. Justification is the finished and complete work, and a man is perfectly justified the moment he believes. Sanctification is an imperfect work, comparatively, and will never be perfected until we reach heaven. Justification admits no growth or increase. A man is as much justified the hour he first comes to Christ by faith as he will be for all eternity. Sanctification is eminently a progressive work and admits a continual growth and enlargement so long as a man lives. Justification has special reference to our persons, our standing in God's sight, and our deliverance from guilt. Sanctification has special reference to our natures and the moral renewal of our hearts. Justification gives us our title to heaven and boldness to enter in. Sanctification gives us our meetness for heaven and prepares us to joy, enjoy it when we dwell there. Justification is the act of God about us and is not easily discerned by others. Sanctification is the work of God within us and cannot be hid in its outward manifestations from the eyes of men. Close quote. This is the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. This is the free and fantastic promise of the gospel to all who would believe and when you depart from god's word you go one of two ways you go into the bondage of legalism or you go into the bondage of lawlessness and both paths lead you to ruin and destruction and misery i have been crucified with christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let's pray.
Father God in heaven. What glorious news. What a helpful word that we are right before you in the righteousness that we have put on in Christ. And this righteousness leads us to delightful adoption. We come into your family as children and you send your spirit of adoption into our heart to meet us, to make us, to perfect us slowly, be it ever so surely, into the image of your beloved Son. And we long for the day when we will be fully and finally free and glorified. But until that day, we eagerly work and labor to make it our own. Pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.